The sermon text reading is from Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings he will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall, shall be allowed to, to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, City Church. Uh, if I don't know you, my name is David. I'm on staff here, and uh, I get the joy and honor of bringing the word to us this morning. Um, if you've been with us for a while, you'll know we've, uh, we've been working our way through the book of Mark, and we're taking a break from that this summer to go through the Psalms, which is uh, something we, we frequently do in the summer. And the Psalms, any good Bible reading plan is going to include something with the Psalms. Uh, John Calvin, in the beginning of his Institutes, he says, the better we know ourselves, the better we know God. And, and the title of the series is Knowing God. Why? Because the honesty we get in the Psalms of both what's in our hearts and then where God is in that. It's a knowing ourselves and it's a knowing God. We're getting honest. And so we do. We do. We get to know God a little bit more by going to Him and going through these Psalms together. So I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing with you what He's taught me this week in Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 is a wonderful psalm um, that answers the question, in the hard times, when there's a disaster or trouble, where is He? Where is God? What can we expect from Him? And so, um, anytime we do a, a whole... So what, what we've been doing through this series is doing like a whole chapter. And anytime you do a whole chapter of a book of the Bible, you can't possibly get to everything. And so, um, there's a lot of nuance, a lot of metaphor in this, uh, in this chapter of Psalms and, and Psalm 91, but uh, we're going to get to three... I want to look at like the three main things that we have here in this passage. The, the three things that are being shown us, offered us in Psalm 91. And those are the promise... That God offers us, the protection that He offers us, and then the consolation He offers us. Okay, so we're going to look first here at the promise. So, what is the promise that is offered us in Psalm 91? And in order to understand the the the, the promise, we have to we have to first ask, where is the promise? So let's look at verse two. So I'll also say, um, you know. Chapters and verses were only added to the scriptures, like, we, we had them for about a thousand years before that started to happen. And so, a lot of, in all the Psalms, verse 1 is like, 
this is the reference for this chapter. And so you, you get verse 1 is like, here's what this chapter is about. And then they dive in, the psalmist dives into what they have to say. So we get that in verse 1. Then verse 2, let's get rolling. Verse 2 tells us where the promise is found. It says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now to us, that may not, um, we wouldn't see this right off the nose. But in, in ancient culture, when this was written, they'd understand this is what's called covenant language. My God in whom I trust. The promise that's offered us in this passage is one that happens under a covenant. And a covenant's not a, a covenant, that's not really a word that we use on the streets much, is it? Um, if you've been in the, the Presbyterian church or the Reformed tradition for a long time, hopefully you've heard the term covenant. Maybe you've heard a little bit about uh, covenant theology. And, um, but what is a covenant? A covenant is, so we, well, let me put it like this. We have our yeses and our noes, right? You can say, hey, Dave, you've got a truck. Can you help me move? And I'm like, yes. Um, that's my yes. I'm giving you my yes. Um, and then above a yes is a, is a promise. So a promise is like, is like this commitment that whatever else comes or happens, I'm going to do everything in my power to keep my yes a yes. So you're making an individual to, to another individual a, a commitment to, to, to make special, uh, put special protection around your yes. And then above the promise is the covenant. And what's the difference between a, a promise and a covenant? Well, a covenant is two things. One, it's public. Did you know, you know if, you go to, if you go to the courthouse to get married... You got to take two witnesses with you. Why? Well, marriage is a covenant. You're making a covenant to your spouse, and you have to have the two witnesses because you have to make your your uh, this covenant public. So when you're when you're making a covenant, you are you are telling not just this person but society about this commitment you're making. You're putting your reputation on the line with this commitment. And and it, so a covenant is one public, and a covenant is two legal. So even if you get married in a church, that officiant takes this piece of paper and takes it to the court and says, these people are now married. This covenant has been formed. So when you get married in your marital covenant, that you, every, everything that you have is put on the line in this commitment. Your reputation, your, your legal standing of, of what you have in society is, is wrapped up in this covenant, in this commitment. And so God is making, makes a covenant with us and we're going to look at what is, what, so what is the covenant? Genesis 17 says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Okay, so this is, you know, we talk sometimes about old covenant, new covenant. This is a covenant that's everlasting. And he says it here. You and I, you and I still have this covenant. It says, um, after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant. When what is the covenant? To be God to you and to your offspring after you. In Exodus 6, he, he reiterates it to, the, to his people. He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. It's, it's simply this. I will be your God, and you will be my people. When you get married, that's what's called a uh, bilateral co- covenant. Two people are making it. What he's making here is what's called a unilateral covenant. You don't see a lot of those. He's saying, whatever else you do, I will be your God, and I will keep you as my people. This is the you know, first book of the Bible. The rest of the Old Testament is chock full of God's people running off, worshiping other, other gods, doing finding comfort in other things, putting, making other things a priority over God. And he, he, he won't let them not be his people anymore. He is covenanted to us. We are his people. Okay, that's a covenant. We're under the covenant and we have the promise. So what's the promise? 
Verse 4, under his wings you will find refuge. That's the promise. Under his wings you will find refuge. And we see, we see the under his wings over and over and over. And what, and what throughout Scripture, and what is under his wings? You know, we're, we're all made in the image of God. Both man and women. And there's, and there's, there's definitely a maternal sense of the, the sort of mother hen putting out her wing and her chicks come up under her wing. And yet the mother hen is strong. Under his wing we will find refuge. There's love and protection under his wing. Psalm 36, both high and low among men find refuge. High and low men mean all kinds of men. Man, men and women. Find refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 61, I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shadow of your wings. In my soul, Psalm 57, in you my soul takes refuge. I'll take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Ah, and here it comes. Until the disaster is past. You see, this is, a, this is one of those psalms that if you take it right off the nose, you could abuse it and manipulate it. You could think, okay, well, if, if you're a Christian, does that mean like you're not going to suffer disaster? You're not going to have trouble in your life? God's going to take care, good care of you? No, no, that's what we call a prosperity gospel. There's actually, you, could all, you could make the argument there's a promise that disaster is going to come. And it is. We all experience some kind of disaster. But we're not exposed to the elements. We're not taking the full brunt of it as children of God. He, he has his wing out for us to come under we get the rain and the hail from the side. We, we know it's out there. Maybe we're afraid of it, but under his wing, we take refuge. I think that for, especially, you know, in, in the U.S., um, in an affluent country like we live, it's so easy for us to take refuge in um, our insurance policies. I've got one in my house, got one in my car, got an umbrella policy. I'm covered, Right? Uh, to take refuge in our pedigree. Hey, if I lose my job or something blows up, I still, you know, I, I still went to school. I went to school. I'll find work again. We take refuge in our name. Hey, I know people. I'm connected. People like me. So, I, you know, I've got that to leverage. <clears throat> Only God's, under God's wing can we actually stand, fully withstand the storm because all of those things can be taken from us. I think it's, it's remarkable that it, this psalm was written by a king who had legions under his command. He had wealth. He had power. And yet, not under that did he find refuge, but under the wing of the Lord. Okay, so that's the promise. Great. What does that actually mean? From What, what can we actually expect in the materially from God as we go out into our lives and the, the disasters come? What does being under his wing actually look like? Okay, two things. Protection. We actually can, can we actually expect real-life protection, like material protection for our lives from God? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. We can, uh, there's a lot we could go to here, but in our passage, we have verse 11. It says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now this, Psalm 91 is full of metaphor. And there is some metaphor here. Lest you strike your foot against a stone. That is a metaphor for you being an idiot. Um, the stone doesn't jump up and bite you. 
you strike your foot against the stone. God even protects us against ourselves when we're, we're being dumb. And he deploys angels to protect us. He deploys his angel. You know, yes, we have God, but we, he also uses his angels to come around us and care for us. And how do we know that that's not metaphor? Well, look forward. Don't you love having the New Testament? David didn't. Uh, but in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes out into the wilderness for temptation. To, say, uh, or to be tempted by the, by the enemy. And, it, and that's a familiar passage, isn't it? Um, and so there's a, there's a litany of different ways that, that Satan tempts Jesus. And one of them, here at ver- verse 5, let me read it. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Okay, so he's, he's standing on the top of this temple, and he's probably five or six stories high. And, and, then, and then Satan quotes our passage to Jesus. He says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So, Satan's interpretation of this passage is that God actually sends angels to actually protect us from physical harm. We're talking about jumping off a building here. And Jesus' response to him is like, yo, you completely missed the point of that passage. No, no, no. Jesus says, again it is written, you should not put the Lord your guide to the test. He says, God gives you a seatbelt. You don't need to crash your car to make sure it works. He was actually tempting Jesus with the power of the angels that are prom- is promised to us, that God deploys on our behalf. <clears throat> God loves to hear our prayers and petition for protection, and he actually provides it all of the time. God protects us all of the time. Listen to this quote from John Calvin. He says, when we look back on our life from the perspective of eternity, we're going to see that the power of Satan was so great that the weakness of our flesh, feeble, the hostility of the world was so strong that every day of our lives, if God had not intervened, we would never have made it through the day. If you've ever driven Atlanta traffic, you should believe this. So he loves to hear our prayers, our petitions for protection, and he loves to answer those prayers. He deploys his angel. When I pray for my children at night, I pray for their safety, both physical, mental, spiritual, and I ask God to surround our house with his angels. And I do the same thing on road trips. I highly recommend it. He actually does it. And what Calvin is saying here is, and not only that, but he is protecting us when we're not even thinking about it. He protects us from the things that we don't even think to ask for protection from. Real-life protection that God is bringing into our lives. But there are times, amen, there are times that God uh, doesn't protect us the way we might have hoped, right? I think that if when I say God, prote- start talking about God protecting us, it's natural for some of us, for our minds to first go to the places where he didn't protect us, right? You're maybe thinking of, he didn't protect me from this or that, or my loved one from this or that? What do we do with that? What does the psalmist here say about that? Chapter, uh, verse 14. So at this point in our passage, the speaker has switched from the psalmist to God responding. And here's what he says. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. 
I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue and honor him. He is with us in the trouble. The trouble is going to come, but we don't brave it alone. We're not left to the elements. Now, if this life is all there is, meaning we die and we just become compost, then when disaster does come, if we do have trouble, it would be natural for us to wear this cloak of victimhood. It would be natural for us to, to try to avoid any type of trouble. Because eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die, right? But the psalmist understands that this is not all there is. And so I can get through the trouble knowing He is with me in it. One of the most common themes in the Bible is one of redemption. God, our Redeemer. Um, In the book of Genesis, there is the story of Joseph. You You know the story of Joseph? He's got several brothers. And he's the youngest. He's a bit of a brat. Um... But nonetheless, he's like the favorite. His dad totally has favoritism toward this, toward Joseph as a younger, the youngest son. And his older brothers resent it. And so what do they do? They literally throw him in a pit for dead. They throw him in a pit. They take his robe, put blood on it, tell his daddy's dead. They mourn him. He's gone in their minds. And then someone digs him out of the pit, sells him into slavery. So first he's left for dead. Now he's a slave. Right. One disaster, two disaster, third disaster, his, his, uh, his, his slave master's wife tries to seduce him, and, then, and he resists, trying to be godly, resists the you know, sexual seduction. And so then she, she actually accuses him of him trying to seduce her, and he gets thrown in prison. So first a pit for death, then slavery, now prison. Disaster, disaster, disaster. But what ends up happening, if you know the story... In the end, Joseph ends up becoming the second most powerful man in Egypt under Pharaoh. He, come, he rises to a place of incredible wealth and power. And he ends up saving the nation of a, of a famine. Now, you could look at that and be like, wow, what a coincidence. No. That is God. Well, let me, let me just... That is God working all things together for good. Because what ends up happening is his brothers end up coming to him later on hungry because of this famine, asking him for food, and they don't know it's actually him. And they realize, holy smokes, the brother we tried to kill, now he's in power. And what does he say to him? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He's the great redeemer. All of the pain, all of the trouble, disasters that we experience, he is redeeming them. One of the promises of God is He does not waste pain. Whatever pain you've gone through, what you're going through now, He's not going to waste that. He is going to redeem it. Um, now, I'm really happy for Joseph because he got to see that play out all in his life. But sometimes we don't, do we? Sometimes we never get to see the other side of the re- how God's redeeming our story. You see... What, what the scripture tells us is that, that, that God is redeeming and making all things new right now. That's why we say we're joining God as a family on mission for the renewal of all things. We believe he's going to one day bring all that renewal to completion. 
And he's, he's, he is inviting us in to participate with him in that renewal. But sometimes we don't get to see the renewal happen all the way, do we? There, you know, the redemptive story is this huge tapestry. If you've ever been to the Vatican, Lane and I got to go to the Vatican several years ago, and, like, the tapestries were just bananas. It's like the, the whole side of this wall over here. It's like one tapestry. It's got to be millions of stitches. And you and me in our lives is maybe a stitch or two in there, and, 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 and the, the trouble and the pain that we've gone through, just a stitch or two in there, but it's part of the tapestry of redemption that he's weaving together right now. I'm one of uh, four kids. I'm the third. I've got two older sisters. My oldest sister, her name's Ellen. She uh, she's extremely gifted uh, athlete. She um, was a ballerina. Uh, at age 19, she got picked up by a professional uh, ballet, ballet company. Got to travel the world dancing. Um, a few la- years later, got married, and uh, they unexpectedly got uh, pregnant on their honeymoon. She's a young woman early in her career as a, as a ballerina. And during her pregnancy, she's told, your child has serious problems. They tell her that she needs to abort the pregnancy. And she chooses not to. So my, my nephew, his name's Matthew, he was born. And he has special needs that no one else has, has ever been documented having. Um, they told her he, he might live a year or two. And a year or two comes and goes, and they say maybe he'll live five years. And five years comes and goes. And, of course, you know, she can't keep dancing because a, a child with this level of special needs, you can't just leave with anybody. So her, her career's ended. And um, today Matthew's 22 years old. He, um, he will forever be a, about a 14-month-old mentally. He's through a tube through his stomach. He wears diapers. Um, my, wife, my, my sister Ellen, she's probably 115 pounds, and Matthew's about the same. So she changes his diaper. She shaves his face. And now they say that he will probably outlive her. And i got to tell you guys, that woman has more joy than anyone I know. And how can you, you know, she's not going to see the end of that redemption story. But how can you have joy with such brokenness, such a disaster, He takes comfort in words like what Paul says in Romans 8. For I consider that sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Can we wait for it with patience? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He really does protect us, but sometimes it doesn't work out the way we might have hoped. But the other promise that's here is we're not in it alone, and he's working it together for good. If you believe in the God of the Bible and that Jesus Christ, your suffering is not meaningless because it is a stitch in the tapestry of a story of redemption. And... The pinnacle of that story is that there was, there was one child of God from whom he did remove his wing of refuge. And that was Jesus Christ. He lived a life where he actually did not deserve the trouble. He didn't deserve the disaster. And yet he goes up on the cross 
and God removes his wing and allows him to be crushed. He allows him to be crushed for all the trouble that you and I actually deserve, all the trouble that you and I have actually created by all the mess-ups that we've done in life. But even for Jesus, Jesus, he, he saw the big tapestry. He saw the bigger picture of redemption. That even for Jesus, God was able to work all things together for good. That in, for that, He was able to enable that in the end, all things will be redeemed, be made new through the power of Jesus Christ for what he did for us on the cross. And that's the power that we have available to us when we go through the sufferings and we go through the trouble. The consolation that we can have that is not meaningless and yet it is part of something beautiful that God started in Jesus and he's going to work together through us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, um, sometimes this is, this is really tough. This is tough. We don't want to suffer. Lord, we invite your protection. We pray you would move your angels. Protect our lives, our children, our homes, our businesses. Lord, give us courage and give us hope. Give us patience like Ellen has. For the, the, the hope of the redemption that's to come. Lord, I pray this for our people now. Amen.